So yesterday afternoon, um, we looked through a certain lens of relationship with embodied life, which we spoke about as what we might call the biology of self, and particularly the the biological drives that we've inherited, and a way into a kind of wiser, freer relationship with those. And this afternoon, I'll explore what, just on the way down the stairs now, I was thinking, so if that was the biological self, does that mean we're exploring the psychological self? I thought, oh, 40 minutes or so for (laughs) the psychological self. I thought that might seem a bit disrespectful to those who've written great, lots of thick books about... uh, the psychological self. So, of course, any, any exploration is a partial one, but looking through this particular lens of the way in which we maintain the sense of a psychological self, and the way this bodily existence seems very personal, the way this sense of what this biological, um, of what this embodied existence is, is maintained and reinforced by a sense of personality and history, right? This isn't just life, we say, this is my life. And then the question arises, well, who is the me that we're taking this one to be. The me that experiences those drives, we spoke about yesterday. The me in an existential sense that we'll speak about tomorrow. And then for today, the me in a psychological sense. And I thought to just take uh, three slightly different ways of looking at that, which uh, we'll call uh, self-image, self-reinforcement, and self-judgment. They seem, that's probably not an exhaustive list, but they're three of the primary ways, it seems to me, that uh, we kind of maintain and believe in and act out our psychology. The ways we believe in and maintain and act out my life, my issues, my history, my needs, my resentments, my hopes, my relationships, my patterns, my stuff. So, beginning with self-image then, it's very interesting. I wonder what, what do you notice, in fact, just to invite you to contemplate for a minute. What is your self-image? Or what is a self-image you have about yourself? Mm, in fact, that's a really good question. And if, if we had longer, it just occurs to me in asking it, it would be a good exercise for us to do. And to get you to like that kind of... Those kind of inquiry exercises one can do, which some of you maybe have done with me here on retreat before, just to get to ask each other again and again, so as to bring out some of those self-images. Tell me a self-image that you have. It's an exercise you could do while you're here, 
if you like, just in written form. What's a self-image I have about myself? Oh, I'm someone who... Da, 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 da. What's a self-image I have? Oh, I... Uh. And of course, we're, we're often coming up with, believing in, reinforcing self-images. And rather shockingly, when we start to really expose them, we find that we're coming up with them and reinforcing them with little regard for whether they have any basis in reality. Some of them are very out of date. <laughs> Some of that self-image is particularly tied to body, body image. And, of course, we're familiar, probably, with all the cultural pressures around body image, particularly the cultural pressures on women, more so than men, around body image, the kind of idealizing of a certain narrow kind of youthfulness and beauty and ethnicity, and the kind of the squeezing the great variety of, uh, of human uh, body types and expressions and, uh, and all into uh, the, the sort of cultural pressure towards a certain kind of conformity that can be there. What's your body image? What's the sense you have? When you think, when you hear the word, my body, just to reflect yourself, what's, what's your relationship to that? My body. I mean, first of all, just to see if it's broadly positive or negative. My body. And I don't mean actually my body, I mean yours, let's make that clear. <laughs> I don't really want you to spend a great deal of time reflecting on your <laughs> images of my body, right? <laughs> maybe interesting, maybe surprising to reflect in that way, maybe painful to reflect in that way. Maybe that we expose ourselves to, we reveal a sense of ourselves we maybe half knew or didn't even know we were carrying around. That partakes in that kind of pressure. Not just a cultural pressure, but an internalized pressure. That I should look a certain way, I should be a certain way, I should be more something or less of something, etc. Of course, the I that should be more or less this or that uh, where has gotten tied up with this biological life as if this is who I am, which is a rather precarious position because if this is who I am, well, this, our friend here, is where I'm headed. Sometimes, like I say, our, our, um, our self-image is very out of date. The, the who we experience ourselves as, the one we take ourselves to be. Sometimes very, there's a lot of discrepancy. Sometimes an age discrepancy, for example. And people, in, after quite a few decades, many, many decades, will say, I still feel like I'm 18. You say, really? 
right? <laughs> it's kind of sweet idea, right? And I still feel as if I'm 18, but actually, that uh, that gap, that discrepancy, I would say, needs inquiring into. There is a way, it seems to me, and you know, I'm I'm in my mid 40s, so I cannot speak with I can only speak with any kind of authority up to here. I I can't I don't know what it's going to be like in my 50s, 60s, 70s, and I certainly don't want to be blasé about it. I remember speaking with relish about old age sickness and death in my 20s. I know old age sickness and death. I remember extolling the virtues of aging and the slowing down and the less attachment to youth and beauty. And then my hair started to go grey and then, you know, the wrinkles and sagging and suddenly I found it, I was a bit indignant about that. But even at the relatively early on, right, in this stage of body uh, kind of in an out of control and rather um, what seems to me rather unfair way, right, uh, aging, decaying, etc., it seems like it takes some work to stay current with the truth of where I'm at in my life. Right? The reflection, well, I'm you know, the sober reflection, not the, the idle thought, but the actual reflection, well, I'm probably more than halfway through. And as every, pretty much everybody reports, every decade seems to go quicker than the last one, right? And the, all the time up till now seems to have gone pretty damn quick. So life is fleeting. And it's true that there's a certain uh, vigor, a certain vitality, a certain playfulness, a certain energized quality, a certain youthful feeling there that is then rather brought down to earth when I look in the mirror. Oh, the, that vigorous one that I felt was there in the morning. Oh. But that seems to me that's actually a practice of, of, in, of investigating the gap that might be there between body as it is and body image. Right? Favorable or unfavorable. And sometimes it can be the opposite rather than feeling youthful and vigorous and then being surprised by how I don't actually look like that. Sometimes it's, it's the other way, that one has a rather harsh and overly critical, negative uh, view of oneself. You know, when people are asked to describe themselves, did you see that project on the, on the net a year or two ago, where people were... Uh, um, how, do, how did it work, that project? Does somebody remember? It was something to do with people who were asked to draw someone based on their, the person's own, that's right. So artists were asked to draw somebody first, without seeing them, first based on the person's description of themselves, and then based on somebody else's description of them. And then the drawings were compared. And it was very moving, but painfully moving, right? to see how, how often the people's descriptions of themselves were kind of... Um, uh, de self-demeaning, in a way. So, just in terms of, you know, body and the image we have of 
how how this one is. And the self-image, right, of which may be uh, more sort of visual or maybe more vocal. The image you have of yourself. I'm someone who... Dot, dot, dot. Again, an interesting exercise. I'm someone who... What kind of attributes do you most associate with yourself? What are the, the attributes that feed the self-image? When people are asked to come up with some list of their attributes, Tendent, general tendency is to, to find it quite easy to come up with uh, negative attributes. And often rather painfully difficult to come up with positive attributes. So whether it's in the, the example of the drawings, body image, or whether it's more in terms of qualities, attributes, the sense of self-image, there's often a, a kind of just the distorting impact. How we view ourselves may not be very accurate. And again, that's actually helpful news to us to learn, to really see through these kinds of exercises, these kinds of reflections, to really see that maybe the, the, the way I see myself, the way I see this body, the way I see this being, isn't really worth giving a lot of authority to. Maybe it's prone to errors, distortions, prone to demeaning oneself. It's to undo some of that that we give so much emphasis in this practice to relating not to body as image, as idea, but as direct experience. One's direct experience cannot be contained by a, a self-image, by a body image. And at first, like I think we were saying a little on the first night, at first when we say, oh, to just have the attention in the body, then the view is that the body is this kind of shape and the attention's inside. And we might say, oh yes, these are my hands, these are my feet, this is my breath, etc. But as a certain sensitivity grows, and you may be very familiar with that experience, that actually you're not experiencing anymore in terms of hands and feet, and as if the body is, is a kind of a mechanical thing made up of bits and pieces. One can't feel where the fingers end and the knees begin. But experience isn't, isn't uh, mechanistic in that way but is fluid, alive. And as, that, as we sense into that fluidity, often there's experiences that uh, really defy our usual sense of body. We were hearing the other day about that sense of, uh, of a kind of letting go of a particular contraction in meditation and feeling that oceanic sense, an edgeless, vast sense of bodily life. And the invitation of our practice, actually, to trust that direct experience rather than trusting or coming back to the usual, old, well-worn sense of body as thing, body as self-image. So sometimes that's 
a sense of vastness, or sometimes actually a sense of being tiny, 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 tiny. Sometimes there's a great sense of lightness. People might experience as if the body is, is really floating. Sometimes people have to open their eyes in meditation to check, and then are disappointed to find they're not actually levitating. But body can very, very light. Or conversely, sometimes extremely heavy. Like, bah. Like one's presence on the earth is kind of really weighty. And that even to lift a finger would take a supreme effort. So all those kinds of um, um, what we we might call non-ordinary perceptions or changes or shifts in perception that easily and often happen uh, for people in meditation. It's not actually that any of those experiences is particularly significant in itself. We might find it exhilarating, exciting. We might actually, conversely, sometimes find it frightening and disorientating. But just that change in perception isn't particularly significant in itself. What's significant is that it's the insight that it gives. The opportunity that it affords to, to know body in a different way. And as the experiences of body appear in all kinds of different ways, the, the usual sense of body as thing, body image, self-image, and the kind of ongoing psychological identification, this is who I am, starts to just seem to us more and more foolish, limited, narrow, false. And as we attend to the, the lived body of experience, and as we let go of the, of the image of body, the image of who I think this is, and as we allow for the, the lived experience in whatever form it takes, then increasingly that reliance on body image or self-image thins out and can completely disappear. That it's just not what one goes to in one's psyche anymore for the sense of who I am. It's not what one goes to anymore for the sense of what body is. And what one might, in a conventional sense, in the world, one might go to the doctor and say, you know, I've got a pain in my arm. But even while saying it, there's a knowing intact that it's just for the convention and so as not to confuse the doctor. <laughs> but that actually, there's a, there's a relationship to this physicality, but without... Uh, without believing in a, an ownership, an image, an identification that's kind of uh, that's fixated here. Fluid rather than fixated. Expansive rather than bound to this uh, human-shaped lump of flesh.
What did I say next? Well, there were three, weren't there? The self-image, self-reinforcement. Yeah. Right, that tendency to, to keep telling oneself the same story about who I am. And much of the mental clutter that we've doubtless been exposed to over these days and that we've been speaking about sometimes, right? much of the endless just you know, reaching for something in the future, remembering something in the past, droning on about what's happening in the present, Right, much of that just that automatic thought production or image production is just a way to, to reinforce the familiar sense of self. All the I, me, and my language. Right? The stuff we do with sensation in the body and meditation. Oh, my leg is hurting now. What am I going to do? Etc. Etc. And even if there's not much charge to it, right? oh, I'm, I'd like this. Oh, I wonder about that. Um, this happened to me. Oh, my uh, such and such. Right? It's just the, all of that going on, going on. Sometimes relentlessly, infuriatingly, exhaustingly going on. And sometimes just going on so consistently and sort of quietly in the background that we barely notice it's there except for when we do something like meditation retreat, which tends to turn the volume up, or at least, which actually, which increases our sensitivity to it, so we notice it more loudly. Going on in such a way as to just reinforce the familiar sense of me, the one here, the one who, the one that. And so, our practice, like we've said, uh, like we've been doing, of just leaving that alone, unhooking from that, not relying on that clutter for our sense of what this existence, what this experience, what this knowing is. And like uh, we heard in the question yesterday about, you know, when, when... it's to know that it's clutter, when to just let go of the content and when it needs investigating. You know, a lot of our reactivity can just be dropped. A lot of that self-reinforcement can just be dropped. And as we get, as you know from your practice, many of you, as we get increasingly skillful at recognizing, oh, that's just the cluttery content, and dropping it, then what opens up is space around the usual self-reinforcement. Space in which to experience this field of experience, this body of experience, in a different way, in a freer way, in a way that's not having the same story told and retold and reinforced again and again. It's kind of the liberating vision of just letting go of the familiar old (coughs) claptrap. You know that, uh, maybe you know that rather famous story of two Zen monks crossing a river. And when they get to the river crossing, there's a woman uh, who can't manage the 
swift current. So one of the monks uh, picks up the woman and helps her across. And then the two monks carry on their way, but the second monk is giving off those sort of silent vibes of outrage and finally burst out. What are you doing? How could you pick up that woman? You know it's against our, uh, our training precepts to touch a woman. And then the first monk says, yeah, but I've already put her down again. reinforce how, in this case, our sense of righteousness, reinforce our reactivity just through our inability to put it down, to leave it alone, to give up the fussing and freaking out, the righteousness and indignation. And the, the more skillful we get at that, the, actually, the, the more sincere we are in our willingness to do that, the more that space opens up. The more we're able to see ourselves free of our self-reinforcement, free of our psychology, free of our reactivity, free of our patterns, free of our beliefs, free of our views, free of being right. And, of course, there's more to the psychological self than just that background reinforcement. There's the reinforcement of the old wounds, we might say. There's the reinforcement that's been going on so long, since early childhood, maybe before, that we don't, that we, it's harder to recognize as reinforcement the psychological material that just feels true about me. And there's a mixture, I would say, um, in t traditional Dharma practice. There are some good, skillful means for addressing uh, the psychological history. And there's also uh, sometimes the tendency to just want to get past that messy psychological realm. To see through to the space beyond the psychology. And for the everyday reinforcement, the background tendency to just keep on uh, telling ourselves the same story, that works very well. But in terms of some of the more hardwired psychological patterning, then it can lead to what's sometimes called spiritual bypassing. No, I can sort of dissolve that, the, uh, the problematic thought and see through to the space around it. And yet the, the, the pattern isn't undone and keeps coming out in different ways. And in, in some ways, the Western psychological and psychotherapeutic approach has made a really, really important contribution to actually understanding not just the basic makeup of the self-structure, but in understanding for each or any particular person my particular structure, the bits of my story that seem very personally about me, what happened to me.
And I'm curious to ask, maybe you could just with a show of hands, if you feel like raising your hand, how many of you have done some particularly psychological work, some kind of psychotherapeutic work, or uh, either individually or in groups? Yeah, that's probably more than half of you. Good. <laughs> it's... It, it, uh, it's a rare being that can just attend to the self-reinforcement mechanism, we might say, and just let it go, and just let it go, and just let it go, and that that's enough. Without actually reaching into some of the, the, the psychological knots of childhood, parental relationships, other early authorities, etc., And like we were saying last night, sometimes in the, in the letting go around the different, the, those bits of self-reinforcement, there's the stuff that however much we'd like to let it go, won't let go of us. The stuff that has charge, the stuff that has history, the stuff that we're invited to notice, particularly, you know, and this ties in with the self-image, how do you feel when that thought, that angry or resentful or hurt feeling is there. Often one, there's, a, there's a kind of youngness, a smallness, a helplessness, a vulnerability maybe. And the invitation actually to feel into whatever, um, whatever, Um, I was going to say, just that's just not the right word. Whatever. I was going to say whatever psychological stuntedness is there, but it just sounds a bit harsh. And yet I'm not quite finding another word. No, but the the bits of us that actually got um, frozen or stuck, or psychologically cut off. And so again, feeds into the, the self-image, that disparity that we can sometimes feel. And all of us probably have areas in our life where we feel more or less adult, capable, confident. And probably have areas in our life where we actually don't feel very adult, where we feel uh, young, incapable. It can sometimes feel to us in that uh, uh, old place, that limited place, that deficient place. It can seem like I'm, li I'm living in this world where everybody else seems to have made it to adulthood. But, and I'm somehow doing my best to look as if I have as well. <laughs> That's important news to keep reporting because it's very easy to think that I'm the only one who's sort of faking this adulthood thing. And actually those are important places to, to, to find out about, to be mindful of, to sense into, not just in terms of the feeling, the content, 
the story that's being reinforced. But in terms of whatever imagery or associations or memories might go with that, part of the uncovering of uh, the kind of deeper kinds of self-reinforcement. And so we, we deal with that, we practice with that self-reinforcement partly by just letting go of the content and partly by inquiring into the, the one we take ourselves to be there. And increasingly, we find that that self-reinforcement can either just be absent, the times where we just trust what's happening, where we trust the immediacy of things, where we trust embodied experience as it is, enough to not be adding extra layers to the experience through telling us ourselves some familiar rhetoric, some familiar story. Sometimes absent and sometimes just irrelevant. Some of the, the early, strongest ways our sense of self gets developed, our psychological sense of self, me and my story, some of that seems to need repeated visitations, going over it again and again. And sometimes people will say to me, oh, and I'll say, well, maybe, maybe, you know, this needs some attention. And they'll say, oh, yeah, but I've already given that attention. I've looked at that stuff. I've let it go, or I've understood it. And, that's, and, I, uh, and when they tell me that, I don't doubt that for a moment. It's true. But it doesn't, under, it doesn't invalidate the work one may have already done. The fact that one, there may be more to see. There may be more to see. Some of the, the patterning we see into in ourselves... Just the seeing is enough to dissolve it. But it tends to be the older and the more hardwired it is, and the longer we've taken ourselves to be that, the more it needs, the more gentleness it needs, the more time it needs, the more often it needs to be repeated. And some of those patternings, I don't know if they ever disappear. But... What I, so what I mean when I say they become increasingly irrelevant is we less and less take that to be the truth of what it is that's sitting here. We, in other words, increasingly feel ourselves to be being-shaped or awareness-shaped or life-shaped rather than being Martin-shaped history-shaped, self-story-shaped. Does that make sense when I say it like that in terms of the shape? Yeah. We feel the shape of our life increasingly to be being-shaped, awareness-shaped, which really means formless, rather than shaped in that kind of narrow and compressed way by the beliefs and the story 
of who I have been and therefore who I am. So, um, self-image, self-reinforcement, and self-judgment. You know, that, that the self-judgment, that tendency not just to reinforce the sense of who, who I am, but to add on that extra layer of not only how I am, but how I ought to be different. That's how I am, the self-reinforcement, but then how I should be, or how I shouldn't be. And all the painful ways we tell ourselves, you know, that we describe ourselves, not only describe ourselves to ourselves, but evaluate ourselves, judge ourselves, measure ourselves. And you know, the example I often give, you'll have heard me give it before, some of you, just on meditation retreat. Just the way you speak to yourself about, if you have any doubt about whether you, some, some will hear this, some hear this and say, well, self-judgment, why would I? I don't do that. But just consider how you've spoken to yourself about your practice these days. And, and in order to get a sense of how judgmental or evaluating that is, imagine, just imagine, if you were to say, what, the way you speak to yourself about your practice, if you were to speak to somebody else, like that about theirs. You don't look very mindful. <laughs> you seem to be rubbish at this meditation thing. What's the matter with you? Just thinking about lunch again. Say, ring a bell? I mean, there's, all, there's a lot of different versions and expressions of that. But what a pressure to put on ourselves. We're invited into this beautiful atmosphere of care and support. We're invited to just sit down quietly with ourselves. We're invited to pay close and caring and gentle attention to just this being alive. One couldn't think of a gentler request, right? <laughs> Please come, enjoy. You'll be fed. You'll be looked after. You just have to sit around, and you know you're you can just pay attention to the miracle of being alive. And then, what do you do with that? <laughs> and you know, it in a it, it's. So much of the of you know when I meet individually with people and uh, look at their practice with them, so much of uh, so much of our practice is really recognizing and unhooking from that tendency to usually harshly, sometimes not, sometimes in the other way, a sort of inflationary way. Oh, now I right, you might notice that too. You, know, you have five minutes when your your mind stays relatively calm. And you can touch into the breath every now and then. And, oh, look, now I'm really getting this meditation thing. That guy behind me, he's always shuffling around. But I really... You know, <laughs> the same thing, right? We build ourselves up, put ourselves down. And just the way that pressurizes the sense of self, evaluates the sense of self, makes the sense of who I am, what this life is, into something to be endlessly and relentlessly and usually brutally fixed, improved on, 
trying to be squeezed into conforming to some ideal we have for ourselves or some ideal that we think someone else has for us, some ideal that our parents maybe had for us. I've just seen an opportunity in talking about this to make a plug for a workshop that I'm running in London. So each year I take a week just uh, of practice just to explore the mechanism of self-judgment with people. And I think it's happening in the, the first week of March in London this year. And you can find about that from London Insight. But I'll, I'll speak about it at the end of the retreat. But the reason I think about it is because there's so, there's so much to explore and I find myself with a few minutes to speak about it. If we look to the tradition then, and again, some of you are familiar with that way, uh, that the, the voice of self-judgment and self-evaluation is personified in the tradition as Mara, just like it's personified in the Christian tradition as the devil, right? Where the devil comes to Christ when he's out in the desert and tries to tempt him. Hey, you know, what about this? <laughs> and the same in the Buddhist text, Mara comes to the Buddha in various different ways. And it's actually, it's, I won't get into a lot of the detail, but it's, it's quite beautiful and instructive in the texts to see both how the Buddha initially struggles with uh, desire, with doubt, with confusion, all of which are personified as visits from Mara. And Mara means, the word Mara means to beat. Mara is the beater or the killer. The beta, because of that, that kind of harsh prison of evaluation and judgment we find ourselves constrained in. And increasingly then, the, what the, the sort of strategy that the Buddha finds is he says that Mara shows up in whatever guise, and the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. Right, that capacity to actually just recognize Judgment as judgment, doubt as doubt, evaluation as evaluation. Because when we don't recognize it, we're, we're, we're inevitably beholden to it, trying to conform to that relentless ideal. As if we'll get to some stage where that inner structure, the inner judge or the inner critic, will be completely satisfied with us. As if... One day we'll have, we'll have, you know, got it just right, and then it'll completely leave us alone, and we'll just be good enough. Good enough. It doesn't seem as if anybody ever has gotten to that elusive place of good enough. So, to practice with self-judgment is to recognize that relentless and, as I say, often brutal pressure we put on ourselves and to know it for what it is. Listen out. In that moment, right, in that moment where you notice you've been caught in thought, like we were saying, uh, I think maybe last night, the moment of recognizing you've been caught up, that's a great moment, right? That's the cause for celebration. Right? You lost in thought, lost in thought, but life's immediacy is way more powerful than your capacity to get lost in thought. 
So however far down that little rabbit hole you've gone, life's immediacy, the fact that it's right here, wakes you up to that immediacy. You're woken up out of your reverie. Fantastic. Right? You're, you've been brought back to presence when you couldn't do it yourself because you're busy. You've been brought back to presence. What happens in that moment? Well, the opportunity is to be gracious, to be grateful, to recognize one's good fortune. Oh, it's all here. I'm here. Woken up out of my reverie. But if just that simple moment of recognition is kind of corrupted by Mara's influence, how easily we make even that a stick to beat ourselves up with. Oh, I was caught up again. Look, I can't even be mindful for da 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 da. Oh, I was thinking about that thing again, etc. There's all kinds of ways in which we can get to know that structure, its flavor, the kind of voice it has. For some, it's rather harsh and cruel and cutting. For others, it's sort of relentless and nagging. For some, it's blustery and angry. For some, it's not really even a voice. It's just a kind of atmosphere of disapproval. And we can usually recognize our own pattern of judgmentalness towards ourselves from however we felt uh, evaluated, criticized when we were younger. But most essentially, to recognize it as it is, And it seems to be that it's part of the human condition. The tendency to, um, to notice what's happening here and produce a view about what's happening here. It seems to be it's an uh, intrinsic part of human life. It's one of the things that's so instructive in reading the, in the texts. So the Buddha, after... Awakening, speaking about a fully liberated life, Mara still shows up. It's not that Mara's uh, gone. It's not that there's no view or no tendency towards evaluating arises. No, the evaluation arises and Buddha says, I see you, Mara. Increasingly, that structure gets more and more transparent. Less and less tendency, in other words, to believe in the judgments about the one who's here, the one I'm taking my, I take myself to be, the one I tend to reinforce, the one I produce images of, the, the process of that that hold together this kind of conventional, limited sense of self that I'm endlessly trying to um, placate, give pleasure to, and drag from one uh, clumsy experience to the next. Increasingly, no need to rely on any image of what this is. Increasingly free of having to reinforce the sense of what's here.
And as that, those images, as that reinforcement, as that judgment is seen and understood and dropped, then an increasingly fluid participation in this body of life. An increasingly free response to what it is that's here, to what needs attending to, to what needs caring for, for what needs listening to. So, we hang out in bodily life. Noticing how the images that arise and seeing through them, noticing the reinforcement that happens and leaving it alone, noticing the charge that's there and being curious about it, noticing the harshness or evaluation that's there and busting it, seeing it, blowing a raspberry to it. And in this way, we find the liberation of our practice. So may it be so for each of us and all those we have contact with and all those who are curious about life and all those who are alive okay it's about 20 minutes before supper time so some chance for a little quiet sitting or walking or reflecting on the theme and we'll see each other at 7 o'clock Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.